Hello, everybody. <clears throat> Hello. Good late afternoon. I'm Naomi Klein. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, past and present, the elders of the Eora Nation, of the Gadigal people here in Sydney. Welcome to Ceasefire, the Ceasefire on Drugs with Johan Hari, based on his incredible book, uh, Chasing the Scream. Um, I am just going to share with you um, a few observations about Johan, a dear friend and colleague of mine, um, and tell you why I think this book is so special. Um, first of all, Johan is a wonderful, compelling writer. He is also a fearless reporter, and this uh, book represents years of reporting work, traveling around the world, uh, meeting people who are really on the front lines of the impacts of the war on drugs. It also represents a great deal of archival and historical research. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of great reporters out there, but I think what really sets Johan apart is that combination of reporting, writing, storytelling, and the fact that he has a big, dangerous idea and is not afraid to upset uh, the status quo. This is a very powerful combination. Uh, Johann's book and the talk you'll be hearing uh, today reflects the fact that this is not a polemic. This is not a book that was written, um, you know, based on a preset idea that Johann already had. It is um, a book that really was born out of the re research. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to, to, to be having lots of conversations with Johann as he was on this amazing journey. And yeah, he had some ideas going in, but the thesis, the very strong thesis um, that came out at the end was something he couldn't have written uh, before for all of this reporting and research. And what's really struck a chord about this, uh, about this book, and you know, I, I've rarely seen um, a book resonate with people so powerfully you know, without a big you know, budget behind it, marketing it. It's really just been the power of going out there and saying things that connect with people's lived reality. And what Johan is doing is something very subversive. He is talking, yes, about the war on drugs, but it's really uh, a conversation about failures in our society and how addiction is a symptom of a failure of connection, of uh, the fact that we live in a culture with a great many isolated and unhappy people who are trying to self-medicate in various ways. Um, I'm not going to scoop him any more than that. Uh, many of you have heard him talk. Some of you haven't at all. So um, I will just let him do that part. But I would just tell you a little bit uh, um, more about, about what I think is very special about Johan, and, and that really is the depths of his compassion, um, which you'll get a sense of today, the genuineness of his outrage at abuses of power. Uh, Johan is the most loyal friend um, you could ever hope to have. He is an incredibly good friend, but you don't want to have him as an enemy. Um, and, uh, and, and he has that keen sense of right and wrong, of social justice. He has written for many of the world's leading publications, the New York Times, Le Mans, The Guardian, the Los Angeles Times, and on and on. Before he embarked on this all-consuming project, he was a regular columnist for The Independent in the UK, writing a must-read column. 
It might interest some of you to know that unlike many British journalists, he does not come from the aristocracy. His mother is from the Scottish tenements. His father is from the Swiss, Swiss mountains. He did study at Cambridge, like the rest of the British aristocracy. Um, no, he's not part of the aristocracy. He was named National Newspaper Journalist of the Year by Amnesty International twice. He was named Environmental Commentator of the Year uh, by Editorial Intelligence Awards, Gay Journalist of the Year at the Stonewall Awards. He is a very impressive guy. One of the most annoying things about being Johan's friend is that while he is touring the world with this wonderful book, he is already working on two more books, which is simply unacceptable. I demand that he coast. Uh, join me in welcoming the fantastic Johan Kari. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks very much. Um, I'm actually, obviously, really thrilled to hear Naomi say that. I'm also a bit relieved, because I don't know if you guys know, she's um, been spending a lot of time lately at the Vatican. Uh, she was invited to be the only non-Catholic who launched their amazing new climate change strategy. And I was getting a bit worried she's been palling around with the Pope. I was getting a bit worried that she might lose interest in her friends who have less than a billion religious followers. But uh, <laughs> fortunately, it's not happened yet. I want to just pledge here that I will not rest until Naomi is the world's first Jewish atheist female Pope. Um, <laughs> Well, if you all commit to it, we'll make it happen. Um, I wanted to start just by saying two things I shouldn't really say, and then I'll talk about the war on drugs. The first is, if you're only going to read one book this today, and you can buy one book this today, next week, next month, this year, it shouldn't be my book. You should read This Changes Everything, you know, once a decade. Naomi, it's an incredible, yeah. You know... Once a decade, Naomi writes a book that redefines that decade. You know, no logo in the shock doctrine. I actually think this changes everything. is even more important than them. It shows us that the, the forces that are causing the climate crisis, that are disastrously destabilising the means of life on Earth, are also the forces that are making your life pretty shit in other ways. And that global warming is not just a looming disaster. It's the best opportunity we'll ever get to rebuild and to build a dramatically better society. And I think the book, everyone I know who's read the book, it, you know, it's like speaking to people after they've read it, you can have a different kind of conversation because they get so many more things. The other thing I shouldn't say is um, I'm a little bit disappointed with Australia, not the people who were amazing. You're like British people without all our hang-ups. It's great. But um, I was raised mostly by my grandmother and... Um, we used to obsessively watch Sons and Daughters and the Young Doctors. And um, I know some of the younger people here might not know what that is. That they were Tolstoyan epics about Australia. And uh, one of the things I was led to believe as a child is that a common event in Australia, because of those shows, is that people are regularly kidnapped and replaced by identical twin siblings they never knew existed. And um, annoyingly, that hasn't happened once since I got here. So I don't know if Reg Grundy is still alive. If he is, you should all mount a class action lawsuit against him on the grounds. Um, I want to relate some of the things I learned to what's happening in Australia. You are being systematically misinformed about two of the most disastrous things that are happening in your country. Um, and I've been quite shocked by the coverage of the ice epidemic. Um, methamphetamine addiction is very real in this country. It's a tragedy. You are being misinformed about why it's happening. And you're being fed a ca catastrophic solution that will make it worse. And there's a whole other disaster that's going on that you're not even being given the context for. So do you want to talk... Uh, a bit about them. First thing has nothing to do with addiction. A lot of the reaction to my book has been about um, stuff I write about the way we treat addicts, which obviously I think is hugely important. One of the reasons I started on the journey was because one of my, one of my earliest memories was of trying to wake up one of my relatives and, and not being able to. And um, I, didn't, I, I didn't understand why, obviously I was very young. But as I got older, I realised we had drug addiction in my family. 
And when I thought I was going to write a book about this, I realised we were coming up to 100 years since drugs were first banned. I thought, oh, I know loads about this subject. You know, like I thought I'd, you know, I'd, I'd lived it in my family and also I'd written about it quite a lot as a journalist. But when I sat down, I suddenly realised there were loads of unbelievably basic questions that I didn't know the answer to. Like, why did we go to war against drug users and drug addicts 100 years ago? Why are we carrying on with this strategy when it seems to have failed? Is there a different way of doing this that would actually turn addicts' lives around? And what really causes drug use and drug addiction? And obviously, read loads. And I couldn't really find the answers in what I was reading, so I decided to go on a journey. I didn't, as Naomi knows, I didn't realise at the start it would take as long as it did. I ended up going over 30,000 miles, a dozen countries. What I wanted to do was to sit with people whose lives had been changed one way or another by this approach and by the alternatives. So I ended up getting to know a kind of crazy range of people from a, a transgender crack dealer in Brownsville, Brooklyn, to um, a hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel, to a scientist who spends loads of time feeding hallucinogens to mongooses to see if they like them. Um, <laughs> they do, but only in really specific circumstances, ask me if you want to know. Um, to the only country that's decriminalised all drugs, from cannabis to ice, with really extraordinary results. And I think the main thing I realised is, almost everything I thought I knew about this subject was wrong. Drugs are not what we think they are. Addiction is not what we think it is. The drug war is not what we, it's been portrayed as on our TV screens for 100 years. And the alternatives to the drug war aren't what we think they are. And one of the people I met might help us to think about something that's gone catastrophically wrong here in Australia. Lee Maddox has become a friend of mine. She's a, she was a cop in Baltimore and Maryland. And Lee is, how would you describe her? If you picture any American cop show where there's a uh, kind of hot, hard-working, hard-boiled, tough female cop who likes busting people, that's Lee. No matter how much I got to know her, I always half expected her to shoot me at the end of the conversation. And, um, and Lee signed up to be a cop for the strongest possible reason. Lee had a best friend called Lisa, who she'd known since she was very young. They looked really similar. They used to share illegal ID to buy alcohol. One day they went, when they were both there, 18, they went, they went to the beach one day in New Jersey. And at the end of it, Lisa... Uh, went back, decided to hitch to go and see her boyfriend. And the next day, uh, Lisa's boyfriend turned up and said, where's Lisa? And Lisa said, oh, she went hitchhiking to find you. And he said, no, she's, she didn't turn up. Um, Lisa wasn't found for another six weeks. It turned out she'd been murdered by a drug gang. And Lee went that day, the day her body was found, to sign up to be a state trooper. And she went into this to bust the drug gangs. She wanted to destroy these people. And Lee was a cop for many years, and she busted people for having a single joint because she said, you're funding these gangs. She obviously went after the gangs themselves. But Lee's a really honest person, and Lee noticed two things that made her uncomfortable. The first was they only ever went to black neighbourhoods. Uh, and she kind of suspected white people sometimes use drugs. Um, <laughs> but the other thing she noticed was slightly more... might seem stranger at first. If you're a cop and you bust a rapist... The next week, fewer women get raped in your town. If you're a cop and you bust a burglar, more, fewer people get burgled. If you bust a drug dealer, there's no less drug dealing, right? We all know there's someone else on the corner. It, we know that partly because the price doesn't go up. The price would go up if there was less, you know, supply was being constricted. But she noticed something else kind of weird, which is, if you bust a drug dealer, the murder rate goes up quite significantly. And Lee didn't understand it. What would be the relationship between those two things? And she only really began to understand it 
when um, she went and learned loads about the war on drugs. The best way to explain what was really going on there was, if any of you guys, after I've spoken, feel a bit depressed, I hope you don't, and you decide you want to steal a bottle of vodka, and you go out of here to, I don't know what the nearest bar is, and they're not far away, obviously, and you get caught stealing that bottle of vodka, that bar will call the cops, the cops will come and take you away. So... That bar doesn't need to be violent, it doesn't need to be intimidating, it has the power of the law to protect its property rights. If after I've spoken, you decide you don't want to steal a bottle of vodka, you want to steal some cannabis or some cocaine, and the guy in this neighbourhood, and I'm pretty sure there is one, who sells that stuff, if he catches you, obviously he can't ring the cops, right? They would arrest him. He has to fight you, he has to be violent. Now, if you're a drug dealer, you don't want to be having a fight every day. You want to establish a reputation for being so terrifying that no one will dare to take you on. In fact, when you arrive in an area and you want to be a drug dealer, almost always you have to fight off the rival drug dealers. You have to establish a reputation for being terrifying through theatrical acts of violence. Um, one American writer put it, the war on drugs creates a war for drugs. And if you understand why that's entirely the product of prohibition, ask yourself, where are the violent alcohol dealers today in Chicago? Right? Does the head of Smirnoff go and shoot the head of Heineken in the face? <laughs> no, but under alcohol prohibition, that's exactly what happened. It ended the day alcohol prohibition ended. There are no violent alcohol dealers. Um, you know, you're often told in the Australian media, you'll hear, look out for this phrase. It's a very, um, really you're being lied to. The phrase is used all the time, drug-related violence. They'll describe something as drug-related violence, right? And what you picture when you hear that is someone using drugs, losing the plot and killing someone. That does happen, it's around 2 to 7% of so-called drug-related violence. All the rest is nothing like that. It's dealers killing each other to control the trade. We can end that. If you want to know how this happened in Australia, I did a little bit of a looking. This, happened, this is one of the biggest drivers of your murder rate. I'll give you two examples. The other day, a guy called Harvey Spence, who was a dealer in Johnsonville, he thought that he, someone he knew was a police informant. He was actually mistaken. He drove him out to the countryside, he suffocated him. The guy didn't die when he was suffocated, so then he burned him alive and dumped him in the Tambo River. The judge, the, the, this wasn't the last few weeks, the trial was the last few weeks. The judge said it was one of the worst deaths he'd ever heard of. In Kalgoorlie the other day, four men, four young men, dismembered a 24-year-old called Bo Davis, alive. Uh, they believed he was a rival dealer. Um, this is happening, look at the news, this happens every day. Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, it pains me to quote him approvingly in front of Naomi because he is basically an evil monster, but, and, the enemy of her, and the enemy of her book, The Shock Doctrine, but he uh, unfortunately was very good on this one issue. And uh, he calculated that there are 10,000 additional murders every year in the United States as a direct result of this dynamic. Lee learned all this, but it's tough to give up your job and it's tough to rethink how you've thought about the world. And one day, Lee's partner, policing partner, Ed Totley, who she worked with for years, great guy, he was a massive opponent of sexism, big cheerleader for, for Lee and the other women on the Baltimore force, Maryland force. He went to do a drugs bust of a cocaine dealer and the cocaine dealer pulled out a gun and shot him in the head. Um, he didn't actually know that Ed was a cop, he just thought he was a rival dealer. And Lee suddenly realised she'd lost her two friends in this war. And she thought, what are we gaining for all these deaths? We can't even keep drugs out of our prisons. And we've got a walled perimeter that we pay someone to walk around the whole time. The attempt to eradicate drugs by force is a preposterous fantasy. It's what you're being offered by Tony Abbott 
as the solution to the ice epidemic. It has never worked. If you can't keep them out of a prison, I would suggest he consults a map of Australia and looks at your land border. Good luck keeping them out of Australia. So that's a horrendous tragedy, right? Actually, that tragedy plays out much more in the supply route countries. I went to northern Mexico, for example, Ciudad Juarez, one of the deadliest places in the world at the time. 160,000 people have died in the drug war-caused violence in the last seven years. Died or disappeared, which means they're dead. Um, I don't want to go into that too much. I want to tell you about one person uh, in there, uh, in that place. Maricela Escobedo was a nurse in Ciudad Juarez. She never used any drugs. No one in her family ever used any drugs. She never sold any drugs. No one in her family ever sold any drugs. She had no interest in them. But she happened to live in Juarez at the point at which, so obviously, if you crack down on drugs, what will happen is they move, the supply route moves around a bit. So it used to go uh, through the Caribbean into Miami, it's Miami Vice, um, and then they cracked down on that route, so it started to go through Mexico. And Maricela used to run a woodwork stall. In addition to being a nurse, she used to run this stall at the weekends. And one day, this 21-year-old guy called Sergio came up to her stall, and he said... Um, Oh, I've just had a baby, I'm looking for some work, I can't find any work, will you give me a job? And Maricela was kind of soft-hearted, so she said, OK. And he started working on her stool. A couple of months later, to her horror, she found out that he was sleeping with her 14-year-old daughter, Ruby. So she went to the police and she said, you know, you've got to arrest this guy, he's a 21-year-old, he's having sex with a 14-year-old. They didn't do anything. And Maricela was puzzled, but she kind of obviously fired the guy. And her daughter kept running away to be with Sergio, and she kept going to the police saying, you've got to get her back, this is a crime. And they kept doing nothing, and she was puzzled. Her daughter got pregnant. She was really heartbroken. The daughter was 15 by then, Ruby. But Maricela, you know, wanted to keep her daughter in her life, so she kept going to see her and was enraged at this guy. One day, she turned up to see Ruby and the baby, and Sergio was there with the baby, but Ruby wasn't there. And she said, where's my daughter? And he said, she's run away with another man. And Maricela said, what, and left her baby? No, that, that's not right. And he said, well, she's gone. She's run off with another guy. And Maricela waited to hear from her daughter. She waited through Christmas, she waited through New Year, she didn't hear anything. And she decided, she got very worried, obviously, she started to hand out leaflets in the neighbourhood with pictures of Ruby on them. And she said, have you seen my daughter? And after a week, a boy called Angel, a 15-year-old boy, phoned her and he said, I'm terrified to speak to you, but I think you've got a right to know. Well, you, if you drive me out into the countryside where no one can hear us, I'll talk to you. So she drove him out, he was shaking. And he said to her, Sergio killed your daughter, I helped him dispose of the body, I'll tell you where the body is. So they went and they found the remains of Ruby. And Maricela went to the police and at last Sergio was arrested and he was put on trial and in the witness box he broke down and he cried and he apologised to Maricela for what he'd done. And three weeks later he was acquitted of all charges and Maricela couldn't understand it. And that's when she found out what was really happening. If you picture a housing project in Wollongong where 10% of the population, 10% of the economy is in the hands of armed criminal gangs, that's going to be a shitty place to live. In Ciudad Juarez, it's 70% of the economy. That means the, the criminal gangs can outbid the state. They can pay higher wages to the police. And that's when she found out that Sergio was a member of Los Zetas, the worst, one of the worst Mexican cartels, which means you can do what you want. You can kill a 15-year-old girl, no one cares. You're above the law. But Maricela refused to accept that she lived in a country where there was no justice. So she decided she was going to find Sergio. He disappeared. She turned herself into a detective. She joined up with other mothers whose daughters had disappeared. And she spent three years tracking him all over Mexico. They walked through the desert thousands of miles. They followed every lead. And after three years, Maricela found Sergio. She found him. And she went to the police. And the police let him go. And she went to the state governor's mansion in Chihuahua. She walked through the desert to get there. And she stood outside it. She made 
to set up camp outside it. She said, I'm not leaving here until you arrest him. And on Christmas Eve, she gave a fantastic speech where she called on all the mothers who had daughters who've disappeared in Mexico to come out and join her. And a man walked up to her and shot her in the face. There's a woman who's the head of the DEA in in the US, the Drug Enforcement Agency, one of the main drug war bodies in the world. Her name's Michelle Leon Hart. She was asked, she's actually just just, uh, moved on to another job. She was asked in a Senate uh, subcommittee uh, testimony about the 160,000 people who've died in Mexico in the last few years. She said, these were her exact words, it's a sign of success in the war on drugs. I want to talk to you about the other great tragedy related to the drug war um, that's playing out. It's obviously one that's very close to my heart, which is about addiction. And if we want to understand why uh, the drug war, it doesn't just fail on addiction, it actually makes it worse. Um, I want to tell you a bit about that. And this is, in a way, the thing I found out that most surprised me. If you'd said to me four years ago, what causes, say, heroin addiction, I think I would have looked at you like you were a bit thick. I would have said, well, the clue's in the title. Um, Obviously, heroin causes heroin addiction, right? It's not rocket science. Um, we think that if the... I don't know how many people are on this front row, about 20. If you guys all used heroin together for 20 days... One of you looks weirdly enthusiastic at that prospect. If, one of you, if, um, if you guys all used heroin together for 20 days, by day 21, you'd all be heroin addicts. Because there are chemical hooks in heroin that your, uh, your bodies would start to physically crave. You'd start to desperately need it. And by the end of it, you'd have this ravenous hunger. And if you were deprived of heroin, you would be... You know, you would really want it. The first thing that alerted me to the fact there's something not right about this chemical hooks theory of addiction, which, by the way, is what you're told, of course, about ice. What you're told is it has the most ferociously powerful chemical hooks of any drug, and you use it once, and, you know, you, you want it forever. First thing that alerted me to something that's not right about this is when it's explained to me in Canada by a friend of me in Naomi's, Gabor Mate, a doctor there, that, um, if in, not in Australia, apparently, but if you step out of... If I stepped out of the interview with him in Vancouver or in London or in most parts of... Uh, Western Europe, and I was hit by a truck, I w- and I broke my hip. I'd be taken to hospital, and I'd be given loads of a drug called diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin. It's just a medical name for heroin. It's much stronger heroin than you'd ever buy on the streets, because obviously the stuff you buy from a dealer is heavily contaminated, only a small amount of it's actually heroin, whereas doctors give you the pure stuff. Um, anyone in, in Europe and Canada who's had a hip replacement operation, um, they've taken loads of heroin. If what we believe about addiction is right, What should happen to those people? They're exposed to all the chemical hooks of any addict you'll see on the street. They should become addicts. This has been studied really closely. It virtually never happens. And when I learned that, it seemed so weird and so contrary to everything I've been told that I couldn't make sense of it. I didn't understand it. And I only really began to understand it when I went and interviewed this extraordinary man called Bruce Alexander, who's a professor of psychology in Vancouver. And Bruce explained to me, The theory of addiction we've all got in our heads comes partly from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. When you go home tonight, you can do them yourself if you're feeling a little bit sadistic. You get a rat and you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. Um, It might be difficult, I'm reliably informed that Tony Abbott has made it that those drugs are not available in Australia, but I'm sure you'll find them somehow. Um, (laughs) If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself within a a week or two. So there you go, right? That totally fits. It's where our story of addiction comes from, partly. But in the 70s, Bruce Alexander came along and looked at these experiments and said, well, hang on a minute. 
We're putting these rats in an empty cage. They've got nothing to do except use these drugs. Why don't we try, this, try something different and see how it works? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats. <laughs> Anything a rat can want in life, it's got in Rat Park. It's got loads of friends. It can have loads of sex. It's got loads of cheese. It's got loads of coloured balls. It's got loads of tunnels, which apparently rats love. Um, and it's got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. But here's the fascinating thing. In Rat Park... They don't like the drugged water. They all try it, of course, because they don't know what's in it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. So you go from almost 100%, well, almost 100% overdose when they're isolated to none when they have good lives. Now, there's really important human examples I can tell you about if you like, but the, um, this forces us to reconceptualise addiction, right? The, um, I began to think, what if the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety? What if it's connection? There's a guy in, in Amsterdam called Peter Cohen, another professor, who says, we shouldn't even call it addiction, we should call it bonding. Human beings have an innate need to bond and connect. And if you're happy and healthy, you will bond and connect with the people around you. But if you can't do that, because you're isolated or traumatised or cut off from meaning, or your culture hasn't told you how to find a meaningful life, you're going to bond and connect with something that gives you some sense of relief. That might be gambling, that might be pornography, that might be alcohol, that might be ice. But you will bond with something because that is our nature. And that brings me on to the question of the ice epidemic. There is a real problem with methamphetamine addiction in Australia. They're not making it up. It's a very real problem. If you want to understand why it's happening, what you're being told is it's because of the ferocious chemical hooks in the drug itself. Professor Carl Hart at Columbia University has done the most detailed study of this. What proportion of people who use ice become addicted? What, do you want to just shout a figure at me, someone? What proportion of people who use ice become ice addicts? What would you have guessed? 80%, 90%. 90%. The answer is 15%. 85% of people who use ice don't become addicted. It's a very similar figure for all drugs, right? You are being told a full story that this is a ferociously chemical... It's a ferocious chemical... Especially there's a long history of this, right? Um, the 18th century in London, uh, in Britain, huge numbers of people were driven out of the countryside into these disgusting urban slums. And loads of them became alcoholics. They turned to gin. And it was claimed that gin was this evil drug that hijacks people, that takes them over. Actually, it was very widely reported and very widely believed that if you drank too much gin, you would spontaneously combust. <laughs> and if we look at that and think that's crazy, I want to point out that in this country, it is widely reported in your media and widely stated as a fact by your Prime Minister and your Chief Police Officers that taking ice gives you, and these are their words, superhuman strength. <laughs> right? Let's think about that for a second. If there was in fact a drug that could make humans superhuman... I think we'd all be quite interested in it, right? It's like we live in a Marvel comic, you know? Um, and this magical thinking, now when we think about gin, everyone who came to this walked past somewhere that sold gin. And you were not hijacked, and you were not taken over. And you didn't go in and buy a bottle and doubt, maybe some of you did, but I doubt it, go in and down a bottle, right? The reason isn't because anyone was stopping you. It's because you wanted to be present in your life. It's because you have, well, you want to hear me and hear me, but more importantly, you know, you have jobs you love, you have people you love, you have things you want to do. You know, that's the core of addiction. It's about not being able to bear to be present in your life. So if we want to understand why there's a meth crisis in Australia, we've got to ask ourselves, why are there so many of your fellow citizens who cannot bear to be present? You know, let's think about the indigenous people of Australia, which have been documented to have a much higher rate of addiction. Um, if we think about that, you know, there's this kind of theory that's presented sometimes that Aboriginal peoples can't metabolise alcohol and drugs. There's absolutely no evidence for that. So let's go for that theory. There's one. 
on this side, they can't metabolise it. The other is we, and I do mean we because I'm British, subjected them to a genocide and they've had horrific lives ever since and they're really unhappy. Which of those two explanations seems most plausible to you for why there's a high rate of... Now, you've got to ask, why are so many people cut off from meaning? I don't know enough about Australia, but I can talk to you about other places. I'm running out of time, so I just want to talk about a few um, other things quickly. Um, one is... So, I, I went to the places where they've chosen alternatives, and it's really important. You're being told that there are two possible solutions to this. One is Tony Abbott, war on drugs, crackdown... You, you know how well that's working. The other is kind of what Senator Jackie Lambie is saying. I have a huge amount of sympathy for her. Um, you know, I, I know what it's like to have a, to someone you love who's got a very serious addiction problem. And I don't blame anyone for being at the end of their tether. And I don't blame anyone for reaching for drastic solutions. But her proposal for forced rehab, this has been tried in Sweden and in Vietnam. The Open Society Foundation study found 99% of people leave forced rehab and relapse immediately or within six months. It doesn't work. Um, so we've got to look at the places that do work. And uh, there's two different solutions to these two different halves. There's what we do to addicts, and there's, what we, um, there's the violence caused by the drug war. And I want to talk about solutions that are related but slightly different. In the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in Europe. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin. And every year they did what Tony Abbott's doing with your tax money more. They arrested and imprisoned more people. And every year the problem got worse. And one day, the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition got together and basically said... We can't go on like this. What are we going to do? And they did something really radical, something no one had done since the start of the drug war nearly 100 years before. They said, should we look at the evidence? <laughs> they appointed... <laughs> There's a dangerous idea for you. Um, they appointed a panel of scientists and doctors led by this amazing man called Dr. Huao Gulao, who I got to know. And they said, go away and look at all the evidence. They didn't know about Rat Park, but that ended up being part of what they looked at. Go away, figure out how we would genuinely solve this problem and come back and tell us. And we will agree in advance that we'll do whatever you recommend. So we just took it out of politics. So these guys went away, they came back and they said, decriminalise all drugs, from cannabis to ice. But, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we currently spend on making addicts' lives worse and spend it instead on turning their lives around. And interestingly, it's not what we think of as drug treatment in Australia and Britain. They do a little bit of rehab, they do a little bit of psychological support, but the single biggest thing they did is the opposite of what we do. We take addicts, we give them criminal records, we put barriers between them and reconnecting. What they did in Australia was do everything they could to make them reconnect. They set up a massive programme of job creation for addicts. Say you used to be a mechanic. They went to a garage and they said, if you employ this guy for a year, will pay half his wages. They set up a huge program of microloans so addicts could run small businesses. The message to addicts was, we love you, we value you, we want you back, you deserve connections, you deserve a life like everyone else, we want you to have something to get out of bed for in the morning. And what they found is, as the addicts got back into a world of work, a lot of them started to reconnect, they started to rebuild their relationships. It's now, uh, very soon, it'll be 15 years since this all began, and the results are in. Injecting drug use is down in Portugal by 50%, 5-0%. There's been a massive fall in overdose deaths, a massive fall in HIV transmission among addicts, a massive fall in street crime, a massive fall in burglary, a massive fall in prostitution. And one of the ways you know it's worked so well is that virtually nobody wants to go back. I went and interviewed this guy called Juan Figuera, who led the opposition to the decriminalisation when it happened. As you can imagine, it was really controversial. He was the top drug cop in Portugal, and he said, this will be a disaster. And when I went to see him, he said to me, everything I said would happen didn't happen, 
and everything the other side said would happen did. And he talked about how he felt ashamed that he'd spent 20 years arresting and imprisoning drug users and drug addicts. And he hoped the whole world followed Portugal's example. This is something you can do in Australia. Um, the other half of it is about legalisation. So it's important to understand the difference between decriminalisation and legalisation. Decriminalisation is where you stop punishing users. Legalisation, but, but they still have to go to armed criminal gangs to get their drug. Legalisation is where you open up legal routes to get their drug, and that means different things for different drugs, and I can talk about that. Um, the crudest way of putting it is that decriminalisation shuts down Orange is the New Black, and legalisation shuts down Breaking Bad. Um, <laughs> and... and uh, and there are some places that have decided to shut down Breaking Bad. So Colorado and Washington have legalised marijuana. You have to be over 21, you go to a store, you buy it, you can only buy enough that any reasonable person would want to use in a day. Um, and it's really interesting. When they voted to do that, 55% of people voted for it. Since they've seen it in practice, 70% of people support it. The money that used to go to armed criminal gangs, they're now using to build schools. Um, for different drugs, it means different things. So sometimes people think if you're talking about legalisation of, say, heroin, I don't mean there should be a heroin aisle in 7-Eleven. Um, <laughs> Switzerland has legalised heroin. Right? I'm a Swiss citizen because my dad's from there. And uh, Switzerland is a really conservative country. My poor grandmother got the vote in 1976. This is not San Francisco. And they have voted in two referenda to legalise heroin. And it's really interesting how they did it. So if you're a, an addict, you go to a clinic, you, uh, they give you, 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 you go to clinic in the morning, they give you your heroin, uh, you're not allowed to take it out with you because they don't want people to resell it. You use it there and you leave and go to your job. Because what they found is almost everyone, when the chaos of street use ends and they're given support to turn their lives around, most of them get jobs. It's really interesting. In that clinic, you can set your own dose, which really surprised me. They won't give one that would literally kill you, but anything else they'll give you. And you can stay on that dose for as long as you want. And I was kind of surprised by that. You know, so you could stay on it your whole life. There's never any pressure to cut back. But what's fascinating is... As their lives, Rita Mangi, the amazing psychiatrist that explains to me, as their lives get better, so for example, the women overwhelmingly stop prostituting themselves, street prostitution ends, turns out women don't like having sex with disgusting random strangers for money. <laughs> Who knew? Um, the, when, you know, your life starts to get better, and so you want to be present in your life more. And almost everyone on that program chooses to cut back over time. Do you know how many deaths they've had of heroin overdoses since they legalised heroin in Switzerland? Zero. I don't mean 0% rounding down to zero. I mean they haven't had a single one. Do you know how many violent heroin dealers there are in Switzerland now? None. They don't exist. Um, I want to talk about one last thing. Actually, two last things very quickly. It's about a ripple effect, partly. Um, I think Australia is really ripe for reform, partly because there was an amazing reform that happened here first. Um, at the height of the AIDS crisis, there was an extraordinary doctor here in Australia called Dr Alex Wodak, who realised that two of the biggest transmission points for HIV were going to be gay men and injecting drug users. And he said, well, we've got to hand out clean needles. And the government told him, if you do that, you will be arrested. He was called to a government meeting. He said, if you, this is a very serious crime, you will be facilitating and enabling drug use, we'll arrest you. And as he left, one of the public health advisors got in the lift with him and whispered to him, whatever you do, don't stop. And Alex risked his liberty and his medical licence to hand out those, those needles. It established the principle that it massively reduces HIV transmission. It inspired people all over the world. I just want to say that Alex is actually here today. Alex, could you stand up? Are you, where are you? I can't see him. The, there he is, yeah. You know...
I wanted, there's probably people in this room who were saved from HIV because of what Alex did, because of course it would have spread way beyond the drug using community. Um, but I want to talk about one place and one person who was inspired by Alex just before I finish. Um, in the year 2000 in Vancouver, there was a homeless street addict called Bud Osborne, and he was watching his friends die all around him. He was in a very notorious part of Vancouver called the Downtown East Side. It has one of the highest concentration of addicts, not just in North America, but the world. And because there was a quite intense drug war, people would shoot up behind dumpsters or hiding corners. But if you're hiding from the police and you start to overdose, obviously no one can see you. You just die. Your body's found days later. And Bud thought, I can't just watch my friends all die. I can't just wait for this to happen to me. But he also thought, I'm a homeless junkie. What am I going to do? He had a really simple idea. He gathered together a load of the addicts. And he said, when we're not using, which is most of the time even for quite hardcore addicts, why don't we just draw up a timetable and we'll patrol the alleyways, we'll look in the places where people hide, and if we see someone ODing, we'll call an ambulance. People were a bit sceptical, uh, but they thought, oh, we'll give it a go. They started to do it, and the death toll from overdose on the downtown east side started to really significantly fall. And that was great in itself, but it also meant the addicts thought, maybe we're not the pieces of shit everyone says we are, maybe we can do something. So they formed this group called VANDU, Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, and they started to go to all the public meetings about the menace of the addicts. And uh, they would sit at the back, and after a while, one of them would go, oh, I think you're talking about us. Um, <laughs> and Bud read in the local library about what Alex had done here. He read that there were safe injecting rooms in places like Sydney and Frankfurt in Germany, and they had massively reduced deaths from overdose. And he thought, well, we've got to do that. But there had been nothing like it in North America since the start of the drug war. They decided to pressure the mayor of Vancouver, a guy called Philip Owen, who is a right-wing businessman from a very rich family who said all addicts should be taken and detained at the local military base and never let out. He was a very unlike... If you basically picture Mitt Romney, he's basically Philip Owen was Mitt Romney. <laughs> and um, they decided that everywhere Philip Owen went in public, they were going to follow him with a coffin. And the coffin said, who will die next, Philip Owen, before you open a safe injecting room? And this went on for years. They would stand up at public meetings and you know, berate him. And people started to get disheartened because nothing changed. And one day, to his eternal credit, Philip Owen said, who the fuck are these people? <laughs> and he went to the downtown east side and he met loads of addicts. And then, I'm sorry again, he went to see Milton Friedman. And <laughs> Milton Friedman, it's proof that you can redeem anyone. Uh, and... Uh, and Milton Friedman explained how prohibition works. And Philip Owen came back to Vancouver and he held a press conference. And he had the chief of police and the coroner and a representative of the addicts. And he said, I'm never going to talk about addiction again without having an addict here with me because they know a hell lot better than us. And we're going to open the first safe injecting room in North America and things are going to change around here. So they opened the first safe injecting room in sight. And Philip Owen's right-wing party was so horrified they deselected him and his political career ended. But the more left-wing candidate that was selected by the rival party won and it was kept open. When I went to the downtown east side, um, it had been 10 years since it opened. Deaths from overdose were down by 80%. And average life expectancy on the downtown east side was up by 10 years. And I went and saw Philip Owen and he told me it was the proudest thing he'd ever done. And he would sacrifice his whole political career all over again. But he would never have done it if ordinary citizens had not banded together and pressured him, it ended up being the proudest moment of his life. He would never have thought he would have done that. Not long after I, uh, a while after I, I got to know him, Bud Osborne, the guy who started the uprising, died. He was only in his early 60s, but he had been a homeless addict during a drug war. It takes a toll on you. And when he died, 
they sealed off the streets of the downtown east side where he had lived as a homeless person. And they had this incredible memorial service for him. And loads of people in that crowd knew they were alive because of what Bud had started. The Canadian Supreme Court has now ruled that addicts have an inalienable right to life, and that includes a place, safe place to use drugs. That will never be taken away in Canada now. If any of you are listening to me and you think this is a really big thing, right? We've got to change this, what we're doing to addicts, what we're doing to people in the supply route countries, the murders here in Australia, this is terrible, but this is so big, we're not going to win this. I would say to you, it's hard to think of a more home, a powerless person than a homeless street addict. Bud did not sit there feeling sorry for himself. He didn't wait for a leader. He didn't say someone else should do this. He started where he stood. You are so much more powerful than you know. We have spent a hundred years singing war songs about addicts. We need to start singing love songs to them. Australia is a great place to start. Thank you. Thank you, Johan. That was so incredible. Um, so can we um, bring up the house lights a little bit? Because I can't pick people if I can't see them. House lights, house lights. It's like so, this blindness is like a metaphor for something. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you can start making your way to the microphones. And while you do, I was just going to observe that I think Tony Abbott might be addicted to waging war on everyone and everything. You know, I mean, I've, I've, uh, and honestly, listen, like, you know, I live in a glass house called Canada, so, um, but, but, wow, like, just reading the papers here for 10 days, it's like he's at war with unions, he's at war with immigrants, he wants to go to war with Syria, he's at war, like, it's just, there's just, and drugs. Um, but uh, is it possible to be addicted to war? Ah, interesting, yeah. <laughs> well, one of the interesting discoveries is that there are loads of non-chemical addictions. So, yeah, yeah. you've got, a, got an addict premature. Although, we should point out that your Labour Party's not that much better on this issue. Yes. And it won't be until you make them, so... <laughs> Actually, we're, I should, we should point out, uh, we're, we're both going back to countries, well, I'm a citizen of a country ruled by David Cameron, Stephen Harper, I'm going to go back to a country that might have President Trump, so we are, we're not in a great position, to, yeah, we don't say this for superiority, exactly. I assure you. No, we just have to live up to our duty as foreigners exactly. to, 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 insult your, exactly. to insult your government. Um, before, before I open it up, there was, the, the, I just wanted to ask you, you know, mm. as you've been talking about this, I know that... Um, you know, it's, it, it, you've had all of these experiences where people hear what you have to say and, you know, the guy behind the camera, you know, where you're doing a TV show comes up to you and shares a story, it, particularly this message that this tough love, this tough love uh, message that we get about addicts, you know, that we're encouraging them, that we have to cut them off. Um, People, there's something about that, that that people know is wrong and they're doing it because they've been told that that's the way to treat the addicts that they love. And it, it feels like that message is really hitting home. Can you talk a little bit about some of the conversations you've had? That, that to me has been the most moving bit of it. Very early in, I think it was in DC or Baltimore, I did an event very early in the, after the book coming out. And a woman came up to me and said, you know, my brother's an addict, I haven't seen him in seven years. I read your book and I've, I'm having lunch with him next week. 
And I kind of thought, oh, if nothing else comes from the book, mm-hmm. that's, it's worth it. And a, you know, a, a, an addict came up to me actually in the street and said, um, it's the first book I've read that didn't make me feel ashamed. And I kind of, it makes you realise both what we're up against, how much, it's a particularly cruel kind of war where the victims internalise the most horrible things that are said about them. And, and the people who love them. I mean, I imagine, you know, that wouldn't be the case in most wars. It feels a particularly cruel thing about this war. So, yeah, that's been really moving. And I wonder, though, um, you know, when you're talking, when you're saying, well, if we built a better rat park, um, then we wouldn't need the drugs. Have you also found that people get defensive about that? Because, I mean, you know, if somebody has lost a loved one to drugs, I mean, there's an implicit criticism that there was something about... The, the life that wasn't working. This is really important. Some people hear what I'm saying and think I'm talking about personal love alone can redeem someone from addiction. It will help, but ultimately that model of love has to be at both the political, social and personal level. If you're loving someone in horrendous circumstances where they have, you know, they can't ever get a job again and they have, you know, they're denied access to the most basic forms of meaning, your love will not be enough. So I think you're totally right. It's really important to stress that it's not just a personal thing, although I think the personal thing is important as well. Um, microphone two. Hi. Hello. I'm really nervous, so <laughs> this is my first time ever asking a question. Um, I've been in the privileged position of being able to work with people who have had addiction. Um, I actually worked at a workplace where Tony Abbott came down and called us the Witches of Manly. Um, well, so, um, and I guess my question is, how do we begin a conversation with the broader community about the ideas of love and compassion and caring and connection um, in a system where those ideas aren't really coming forward very easily? Yeah. yeah. Um, I th- should we take more than one, or do you want to... I think we should you go yeah. one at a time. I think, um, I think the work you're doing is really important, and you should be really proud of yourself. Um, I think it's, it's a combination of things. So partly, it's the, the Van Doo model about people humanising this. Look, I'm gay. I'm 36 years old. What I remember when I was growing up realising I was gay. The things that would be said on the front page of national newspapers in Britain. Now, if the most crazy right-wing conservative MP said them, they'd have to stand down. Right? That's how quickly those things change. Mm-hmm. Think about the Stonewall riots, right? 1969, a bunch of drag queens, it's hard to think of a more despised group at that time. Um, after 2,000 years of gay people being persecuted, when the pro-gay position was to say gays aren't evil, they're sick, and that was a minority position, they stand up and say, you know what, you're not going to do this to us anymore. If you had said to them, you know, how many years it is, 46 years from now, Gay marriage will be declared in America. They'll put the rainbow flag that you're waving on the White House. And by the way, the guy who lives there is going to be black. <laughs> if, that would have seemed like us saying, you know what, we're going to... 40 years from now, me and Tony Abbott are going to smoke crack on Mars, right? <laughs> and yet... Although, I wonder if Tony Abbott on crack would be any different to Tony Abbott not on crack, but... And yet, a lot of those people who started that riot that day lived to see that day. So I'm really optimistic about this. This is a failed policy. Everyone knows it's failed. It was really hard to find people like an interview who would defend it. You'll get people who say, oh, the alternatives are even worse. It's so, and the one thing you can say for the war on drugs is we have given it a fair shot. You know, a <laughs> hundred years, a trillion dollars, untold hundreds of thousands of people have died. Yeah. And, Just you know... Keep an eye. Oh, sure, sorry. I, I give long All answers, right. I apologise. Keep going. Thank you. <laughs> Hi. Um, 
Hello. Hello. I, I read your book and at the end of it I came away as I think most people were thinking we've got to make a change to this, this drug war needs to end. And then I had this massive downer of a thought and I thought if, these, if drugs employ so many people around the world, if these economies are going on in Mexico and in cities all over the US, what on earth will happen to all these people who depend on drugs and depend on drug money for their income? Where, what will happen then, you know? Yeah, this is a really important question. So if we think about two places I went to, Baltimore and Juarez, right? So Baltimore and Juarez pay a horrific price for the drug war. There's a huge amount, think about Maricela or Lee. Um, they also gain something which is it, they gain a big industry that runs through their, their city. And I think you're right that when we legalise, they're going to gain a huge amount. Uh, their men will return from prison. The murder rate will absolutely dramatically fall. They'll also lose something. And I think it's very important that we earmark... A bit, we're going to get a huge tax revenue when we legalise this stuff, right? We're already seeing that in Colorado and Washington. Enormous amounts of money. Part of that money has to be earmarked to help the places that will not only gain but lose. I think that's, that's a really important point. And also we have to overthrow capitalism. Yes. Because, um, <laughs> well, no, because, I mean, the, the places that you're talking about, right, are deindustrialized areas that lost their, 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 their industries. And, and, you know, that's true for Baltimore, and it's also true for the Mexican border, which is where all the maquiladores used to be. They all went to China, and this is, you know, part of what fed the, the drug war. But anyway, that's just yeah. me. Um, totally yeah. right. <laughs> um, I'm a school teacher, and I'm curious to know how you think we should be educating kids about drugs. Mm, good question. So there's, I guess, two elements of that. Um, one is, um, if we think about children, uh, this guy I met who told me something, Fred Martins is a really right-wing cop in New Jersey, and he had this epiphany about kids and drugs. So one of the biggest barriers to legalisation is people worry about children, which is totally right, and my book is dedicated to my nephews and my niece, who I really don't want to use drugs. And Fred had this kind of uh, realisation. One day he was, he was in the 70s. He's, like a, he's uncannily like the Clint Eastwood character in Dirty Harry. He would boast about like, putting guns in people's mouths to make them confess he's not a lefty. And, um, <laughs> and Fred said to me, um, one day he was staking out a dealer in a car park in Wayne, New Jersey. And so he was in plain clothes, like, you know, monitoring him or whatever. And a kid, like a 10 or 11-year-old, came up to him and said, hey, mister, will you go into that liquor store and buy me some alcohol? I'm not allowed to buy it. I'm too young. And Fred said, no, get out of here. So the kid went up to the drug dealer and bought drugs from him instead. And although Fred wouldn't put it in such a fancy way, what he realised is legalisation puts a regulatory barrier between our kids and drugs that does not currently exist. No one is selling uh, Jack Daniels or Smirnoff. Loads of them are selling weed and pills, right? Um, that's because the people who control the drug trade in our culture, because of the system we've chosen, well, kids are customer like anyone else. In terms of education, I'm going to give a slightly unsatisfying answer about this. When Portugal decriminalised, they completely reworked their drug education. It went from being, use drugs and it'll kill you, to really bold, they do role plays where the kids are offered cocaine, and I went and saw these lessons, and they're not literally offered cocaine, obviously, uh, where they role, play, <laughs> they role play offering them cocaine, and uh, the kids kind of discuss what they should do, and the teacher never intervenes and goes, yeah, you should say no. Um, so sitting there, I was quite surprised. Um, and the truth is, it didn't make any difference. Um, the, uh, the rate of decriminalisation um, 
the rate of drug use among teenagers very slightly fell and then went back to what it was before. So it's where it was before now. Didn't seem to make any difference. I think education is relatively minor, as you all know as a teacher, the wider social conditions. You know, if you've got kids who've got no hope, you know, a shitty debased culture that offers them nothing, you can give them all the messages in the world, but what we have to do is change the culture that they're, that they're living in and give them a lot more hope. And I think that's the biggest, the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I know it's slightly unsatisfying. I don't think there is a... Yeah. Excellent answer. Hi there. Hi. Hey, thank you both very, very much for uh, outstanding talks today. It's been great. And I'm a school teacher too, so that last question Yay, was really interesting. Teachers. Um, what I'm wondering about is what happens if uh, a country like Australia were to uh, legalise all drugs? How would that... What, what's the sort of flow-on effect that that has for a substance that only comes from particular places in the world where the, the, the supply chain is, is surrounded by illegality and violence? What, what's the sort of flow-on effect? And I also wonder, is there a lot of international pressure from other countries to, you, you know, like uh, trying to prevent progressive change in, in places like Australia? Okay. Um, we actually don't, are going to get kicked out of this room in a couple minutes, so I'm going to take two more questions, and then Johan can do a speed round. Who's next? I'm so bad at that, but I'll do my best. Hello. Hi. Um, I'm actually the daughter of the dude that, the dad that shouted out before about the dual citizenship thing. So this is probably his proudest moment ever of me. Um, I hope this has relevance as well. I, your whole talk is about, you know, uh, legalisation of drugs will solve the problem, but why doesn't that work for gun control? Oh, interesting. It does work. But, um, about earlier. I work in a drug rehab. Um, 85% of my clients have had um, physical, sexual or emotional abuse or neglect growing up. You're talking about connection, building a really nice rat park. Naomi was talking about joining lots of different movements to make a better world. Um, How would you help parents do good things for their children so that they don't feel disconnected and have to Mm self-medicate? Okay, just really quickly. In terms of what the effects are on other countries when you legalise, we don't have to talk hypothetically. Uh, in the 70s, they, um, so there are loads of countries where, we gr- where opium is grown for the pain relief market, the diamorphine I was talking about, um, and we can see what happens. You can go to see them in France, for example. I've driven past them. They're just rows of opium poppies, and they're like, you know, wheat or whatever. You know, so there's no violence surrounding it, nothing. So we just extend that model. You, there's no violence. Why would there be any more violence around that than milk if it's legal? It's nothing to do with the drug itself. Um, in terms of international pressure, you're totally right. There's a huge amount of international pressure on Australia and other countries. The US has threatened countries right from the start of the drug war. And the model of responding to that is the Swiss president, Ruth Dreyfus, who I got to know. Um, when they legalised heroin, Barry McCaffrey, the US drug czar, turned up. And Ruth said to him, and he told her it was a disgrace, and she said, how dare you? I'm the elected president of Switzerland, and you don't get to tell me what to do. Um, <laughs> In terms of gun control, I think it's an interesting question. I think part of it is about um, guns are inherently used to attack another person, right? That's the point of them. Um, I know some people would argue about self-defence and so on, but um, drugs are not inherently used to attack... We all agree that, obviously, forcibly injecting someone else with drugs should be a crime, right? (laughs) And I guess the analogy would be, if lots of people were using drugs to forcibly drug other people, then there would be a parallel with the gun debate. But I don't... Because they're not, almost virtually all drug users... I mean, there are people who spike people with drugs, and that is a crime. Um, 
But that's such a small part of drug use that I don't think, I think the parallel breaks down that. I'm obviously strongly in favour of gun control. Um, and on the last bit, you're totally right, it's a crucially important point. Um, there's this amazing thing called the um, Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey. It looks at terrible things that can happen to a kid, like 10 terrible things from extreme neglect, sexual abuse, and so on. And it sees the correlation with all sorts of things that can go wrong later in life, like obesity, addiction. What it found is if you have six of those adverse childhood experiences as a child, you are 4,600% more likely to become an adult injecting drug user than if you have none. I thought about this a lot when Bobby Christina Brown died, in the daughter of Whitney Houston. And so you're totally right. Investing money in getting to kids who are being abused or being neglected or being treated badly and traumatised and breaking that cycle saves a fortune. And obviously, it saves a huge amount of human misery. It saves a fortune. It's one of the best investments we can make. And given that when we legalise, we're going to have a massive tax windfall up there with Baltimore and Juarez. That's what, top of my list for what we spend the money on. Oh, thank you, Johan. Thank you all so much. Yeah.